maybe. And we are live for the 16th episode of Absolute Absec. Uh, today, it's just Seth and I. Seth. Hey. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to our little podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah. A um, few updates for folks. Uh, Seth managed to put together some stickers and buttons. Um branded for the podcast. So uh, I'm going to be sending out an email um, to the former uh, speakers on special guests on, on the podcast and make sure that they get theirs. Um, if you would also like some, send an email to absoluteabsec at gmail.com. I'll be doing a run to the, the post office soon to make sure they get out. So uh, probably within the next week. Cool. Yeah. Otherwise you can come find me, right? You happen to be this direction as well. I've got a bunch. Yeah, I've been passing them out at some of the cons that I've been at as well. So, if people are around or would like some, let us know. Yeah, you get free hugs uh, and a sticker if you get it from Seth in person. <laughs> hey, no promises, man. <laughs> we need we need assurances. That get those hugs. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that we're doing good good work right is that what it is i yeah um let's see what else do we all right so next week we're going to skip the podcast um i'm going to be in brazil and oh wait actually no next tuesday we'll 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 see about next tuesday um and let's see or maybe it's not next tuesday maybe it's a tuesday after i don't know we'll, we'll figure it out we'll, we'll put something out there via the, the the twitter account um and then on the 29th we'll have uh chris gates on mm -hmm. carnal ownage you may know miss carnal ownage uh he is going with me to brazil for a talk we're giving on um <clears throat> a weird owl which is an open source aws attack library um, so we'll basically be open sourcing the code at the, you shot the sheriff conference in Brazil, giving a live demo, and then, uh, he'll come on the podcast and we'll talk about it the, the 29th, May 29th. Cool. So do you want to give us any previews on what your talks on? Yeah. I mean, I can give you the, the high level. I mean, the basic gist is that like, let's say you have an access to an AWS key. Most folks. I mean, some people definitely know AWS in and out for the rest of the folks that don't though, um, you're, you may not be sure what you have with that AWS key. So like what everybody always publicizes is going after what S3 buckets, something like that. Uh -huh. Yeah. And this is much more about, you know, doing things like turning off monitoring in a stealthy way. Um, getting rid of like cutting off notifications at the knees. Cause a lot of these services that are saying, Hey, somebody's doing something bad. If configured at all, you know, they're using these uh, notification services within AWS. So there's a lot of little things you can do to be stealthy. There's a lot of little things you can do to actually like make that AWS key work for you and elevate privileges. And so that's the kind of stuff that we're going to uh, show. Cool. So, so you're going to talk about Bitcoin mining. Is that it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Basically the whole talk is just about Bitcoin mining. It's just a, it's, it's just, yeah. Or, or Ethereum, whatever. Right. You know, that's uh, yeah. whatever yeah. Uh, Stefan wants to talk about. 
<laughs> well, you say that and you're right though. I mean, that's cause I mean, basically it used to be that people primarily, at least from what I understood, people are primarily trying to, you know, get a, get a, get a key or get, sorry, get access to like an S3 bucket rather um, and harvest sensitive data. And that was kind of the thing that was very publicized, but what is occurring pretty often now is like spinning up a bunch of resources in AWS to do bit. I know that's why you said it, but for those that didn't catch the joke, yeah. Bitcoin mining is kind of a big deal within AWS now. Um, just cause if you have that key and you can spin up a bunch of servers, you get a bunch of free systems, my, uh, mining coins for you. So that's kind of where it's going. Yeah, well, it seems to be like, you know, taking over compute processing. Um, I, we're starting to see that inside of like cross-site scripting attacks, right? Especially the stored ones. You know, they'll, they'll load up a JavaScript library that does you know, altcoin or Bitcoin mining. And then whoever visits that site runs that code. So, they, you know, they're all of the all of the nodes, the clients are becoming the miners for them. Yeah, making making it profitable, making these vulnerabilities profitable. You yeah, know? you got to figure out some way, right? Otherwise, what's the whole point? Yeah, I mean, there's always been some some point with regards to XSS, but I mean, when you look at like Bitcoin mining specifically, it can be pretty lucrative, um, really lucrative. So, I mean, yeah, it's a pretty. It's pretty interesting to watch how the vulnerabilities stay the same, but the way they're used changes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you remember back in the day with you know cross-site scripting when it first came out, everybody's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just HTML. You could never do anything with HTML, right? Yeah. <laughs> You'll find some people that'll deface sites. You know, I, I think I remember the first time I did it on somebody's site and showed it to them and they're like, eh, we don't really care, right? All right, we, we might think about fixing it. We'll put it on the backlog, but no, nah, it doesn't matter. So yeah, you, better turn around from there. But. The one that I always show for demos, like if I'm doing training or something, is br the browser exploitation framework beef. Yep. Because uh, and specifically the webcam one, I always I always use that because, like for whatever reason, it's very impactful to everyone computer savvy or not to see your picture, you know, so, some security guy in a black t-shirt handing you like, Hey, here's your picture of your, you know, of you at your, your workstation or your laptop. So that's, I mean, and you can do that pretty simply just have like people navigate to whatever and start using the, to wherever the beef page is and then just go down to the exploits. And I think it's under miscellaneous and just choose the webcam one and, yeah, people always find that to be pretty impactful. Yeah, yep. yeah. There's a lot that you can do from within a browser that people don't realize just outside of it. So, yeah. Um, it was, it, okay, so I, like I, I know this isn't on our topic list. I, I tweeted it out a couple of days ago. Or I retweeted it. Um, NPM had a security issue recently, right? How did they? Did where? Well, it wasn't NPM, it was with one of the packages. There was a reported malicious module. You know, let me throw this up there. And I, and I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it, right? Um, we, had, we had a blog post a month or two ago about 
you know, how to take over the web, right? And how to create all of these clients and you could use NPM, do a patch against a very popular project, get your code rolled out on a whole bunch of things. And I'm wondering if this Git Cookies module is coming about from that, you know, from that theoretical blog post or supposedly theoretical blog post, right? Yeah, I'm trying to find a link to this one. Uh, oh, I oh, see. I just, did you see it? I threw it in the Google yeah. Hangout. Purported malicious module, get cookies. Early May 2nd, the NPM security team received and responded to reports of a package that masqueraded as a cookie parsing library, but contained a malicious backdoor. Um, concluded that three packages and three versions of the fourth package being a, uh, a plush from no packages push. Uh, initial report, initial information from the community reported. Oh, the community reported. I mean, that first and, for, first, first and foremost is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like, I'm wondering, there's not a lot of detail in here, but the, the whole flow of the response is, I, I mean, it's pretty interesting, right? So somebody noticed either traffic or something going on with one of these more popular projects and had to actually trace it back to the, the supporting library that was doing this malicious, you know, or had inserted this back door, right? Yeah, I'm actually trying to find. Uh, there's something I want to share, but I don't know if I can yet. So I'll come back to this if I can. Yeah, and I'll look up the uh, some information. But um, no, I mean it was the, the interesting thing. So there's this Git cookies packages package within NPM that multiple popular other other popular packages like Express Dash Cookies, Mail Parser and HTTP fetch cookies. So if you're using any of those in your JavaScript library or your JavaScript app, your node app, um, they depend on Git cookies. There was a vulnerable version of Git cookies that had the backdoor. It parsed some user supply HTTP request headers. So apparently whoever was you know, installing this backdoor was actually adding headers to HTTP requests to the applications that were used, that were running this code and getting them to execute specific commands, right? So it was a true back door into your server or into your application. Um, yeah, so mail parser, HTTP fetch cookies, express cookies, get cookies. That was the dependency relationship. Um, so mail parser had something like 64,000 weekly downloads. So there's at least that, you know, at least a few, you know, tens of thousands of apps that are using it. Um, there's something I want to, I'm just not sure if it's been publicly disclosed. So that's why I'm kind of doing some searching here because it's super relevant to what we're talking about. Um, and I have a good story. I just don't know if I'm allowed to. So <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm, that's how it always goes, right? I mean, it, it, it's interesting though, right? It, as we push that blog post out, take a look. They actually call out the username, you know, the, the GitHub username. And I wonder if it, that you know that account is even still active. Hmm. I think they said they got rid of that. You talking about the Dustin eighty seven one? Yep. Yeah, it looks like they got rid of that user. Um, doo -doo -doo. I mean, you see him, you see his username in there in a couple of places. 
npm get cookies, ICMA blog. Oh, crypto enthusiast at Commodity Coin. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at his account, right? So I'm confused. Like this is part of. It sounds like it's part of some pretty integral. Like Express, for instance, that's like not us. Why was that? Did they get access to that? No. I, so it's like he patched the Git Dash Cookies library, and there were libraries above that that, or there's you know there's other modules that depended on that library, like Express Cookies, like Mail Handler, and so he was able to insert his backdoor through that. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I just I, what I want to I don't have I don't know if I can um, publicly comment on this yet. But um, what I can say is that um, in the sense of like, you know, nothing bad, just more of like proactive stuff that uh, is going on. But um, what I can tell you is that. Uh, oh, here we go. Hold on. Nope, it's public. Awesome. Yep. Let me verify. to do do do. It's public, man. How is this not a bigger deal? Um, let's make let's, it a bigger deal. Come on, yeah, we're gonna make it a bigger deal. So here's the deal. To prevent it from pulling. Okay, here. Yep, I'm gonna put the I'm gonna put the link in here. I because it's on the public blog. I'm gonna put it in here to you. If you go down to where it says popular repository namespace retirement, and I'll put it in the video here too. So, okay. To give a little background, what this is, is I just pasted a GitHub uh, blog article. And it's it's interesting because it's actually just a little paragraph here. Uh, and it says essentially like many package managers allow developers to identify packages by the maintainer's login and the project name. Um, great, but to prevent developers from pulling down potentially unsafe packages, we now retire the namespace of any open source project that has had more than 100 clones in the week leading up to the owner's account being renamed or deleted. So that's the official statement. And uh, it's very it's very much what um, it sounds like. So there, for instance, with Go, I don't know if you've seen Seth, but with Go, like you can do an import directly by pointing to a repo, like a GitHub repo. Okay. Right. So what has happened in the past, and I don't have the issue in front of me, and I don't know if I would just because I don't want to call it any specific project, but I've seen it. There was a thing that went on and basically someone proof of concept, um, like a pretty major go package and said, hey, um, you know, I was able to uh, take over this um, uh, namespace that somebody left left open. So basically what I'm saying is there was a popular package. It was located at a, a repo location and you would pull directly from that. But when they had renamed their or their organization, they had left. Oh, they had left their original, um, you know, basically organization or whatever name open. And, uh, so it was redirected and, um, or sorry, sorry, it wasn't redirected to the to the new location. It was redirected to this person's, uh, like where this person hosting the code, um, like they're the namespace they took over. So, um, this function is specifically so that people can now retire the namespace and avoid that issue. So, like, let's say you've got to, to make this more concrete. Let's say on on 
your repo, you've got like, uh, you created like a uh, widgets, Acme organization, and you know, your package points to that widgets, Acme organization forward slash FUD. And um, yeah, so then you decided later, I want to rename it from widgets, Acme to just Acme. Well, you can now retire that namespace so that somebody else can't sign up and take over widgets Acme and FUD and then have you know their package downloaded from anybody whose source code has that import statement. Is that, is that clear or is that a clear explanation or no? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it definitely is. So basically you have all these package managers that depend on GitHub to pull down specific source code repositories, right? right. So in Go, if you, you, know, you reference Acme widgets slash FUD. Right. Right. It's going to go and pull that down and compile it and run it locally. But if you give up the Acme widgets name or you change Acme widgets to just Acme, it means that Acme widgets FUD is still is available for someone else to take over if they happen to notice that it no, it's no longer downloading. Um, at which point, you know, the malicious, you know, way of loading in, again, you know, a, a Bitcoin miner or a, you know, a cryptocurrency miner would be fairly easy to do across the board. Yeah. So, I mean, that sounds very familiar. I, would like, I don't know if the NPM one is quite that way. Um, it might have been that he just pushed, he just, um, like, he just did a pull request against the Git Cookies repository that got accepted, right? We just don't know. Um, and I can't tell from his GitHub profile because it's no longer in there, right? So whatever he did right. just doesn't exist anymore, right? You can't necessarily see it because I don't see it, you know, he hasn't starred anything that's related to Git cookies. Um, I mean, as long as it is this Dustin87 that still exists on GitHub. But I, I mean, I think it's pretty like responsible, like, from GitHub to actually go out and make that change, right? Because there's uh, technically you don't have any skin in that game. From yeah. a, you know a community perspective, it's like, hey, we're going to do the right thing here, but realistically, that's not it's not necessarily your role. <laughs> no, it's a hundred percent to just be like you said, just something to make the community safer. Uh, it's obviously the issue of pulling in from GitHub is it's not like GitHub isn't the issue. If you can do the same thing from Bitbucket, Git or Golang just uses Git, right? So it imports directly from a Git repository. The thing that's specific to GitHub is like you said, just wanting to do the right thing and adding in this little, well, it's not little. It's a, again, it's weird that it's just a like a uh, little paragraph because I think it's so important and so so cool. But um, yeah, like it. Yes. Um, the so, so, real so question is, is we should target Bitbucket and other Git <laughs> service providers and see if they're doing the same thing. <laughs> I would never tell you to go out to Bitbucket or GitLab and do that. I would never say that. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm kidding. But what I, I do think is interesting is like, well, so is Golang the only language that, I mean, it can't be the only language that's doing direct imports from, from GitHub. No, no, not at all, right? I, I mean, I guess you think about Gradle and Java, right? I think you can reference GitHub from in there as well, or Git, 
to actually pull a repository or artifactory, right? That's the whole point of those dependencies. Uh, and I wonder if, you know, Python and, you know, like requirements.txt, if it's doing the same thing, it would be interesting to actually play with that and to dig a little deeper in the mechanics of those, of those dependencies and actually see what is pulling from, from a Git repository versus a trusted link, right? It does bring up the interesting, yeah, because it, I mean, yeah, it definitely brings up an interesting question of is that, is that a good design decision, right? To not have a centralized package registry, whether it's internal to your company or whether it's, you know, say NPM, I mean, say what you want, there was still like, okay, someone got this up on NPM, but there was still someone there to say, oh, look, this doesn't look valid or legitimate. And then they removed the library and then, you know, it, they've put out a blog post. Obviously nobody can download that. That user has no content. Um, they're for, for all the intents and purposes, the code and the person don't exist. Right. So that's just directly because you're going, or that's because you're going directly through a, a centralized package manager. The second you start saying, cool, yeah, just go to any, you know, Git repository, whether it's Bitbucket or GitHub or whatever, um, probably GitHub. But, uh, you know, you, you're now saying, like, I implicitly trust each individual organization or person I'm downloading code from, and you don't have, like, a centralized way of, you know, someone pointing that out in the community and then it being taken down. Yeah. So there's an interesting, there's like a blog post that's actually out on GitHub. Somebody's kind of analyzed the different packages and this is probably where it came from. I can't read it though, cause I can't, it's, it's definitely not English <laughs> or German. Those are the only two languages that I speak. I'm sorry, <laughs> but we should translate it and actually see, cause he's gone through and done some analysis on the actual dates of pushing things into Git cookies. Um, so he like this 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 Dustin eighty seven account actually patched the you know Git cubby Git cookies repository uh, looks like late March right so it was it was valid for a good month plus and it it, it really makes me question how how many of those packages are backdoored in some way right. Yeah, I, I would be curious. I wonder, I'm, I feel like someone's done some of their homework on this before, though. And certainly, I'm sure there's been some, you know, folks going through for their in college doing some study for their degree, and they this has been their case study. You know, I I'm, I'm have to imagine that exists out there. Yeah. I just don't have a link. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, I don't know. And I mean, if any, like the listeners do it for sure, you know, speak up because it looks like it'd be pretty. Plus, you'd have to imagine like a black duck or someone who makes money off that would definitely have done that homework. Yeah, hey, you, you would think so, right? That they're watching the NPM repository. I, I mean, the issue specifically with NPM is just the number of package pushes that they go through every day, right? Um, what is that site that you can actually look at? Um, module counts. Module accounts. Is that what you said? 
you know, it's just here. I'll uh, we'll paste it up there. It's called it's just modulecounts.com. And it actually shows you how many modules are available in all of the different uh, package repositories that are out there, right? And how quickly those are those are growing. So you'll notice that you know npm has something like six hundred thousand packages, right? So right. as of May eighth, six hundred twenty-seven thousand one hundred eight packages. And the average growth is 477 packages per day. I mean, Maven Central for Java only has 108 per day. Um, yeah, I, I, I just don't know how NPM gets, like how you can actually analyze all of that code, right? Um, we should have Adam Baldwin on and ask him. You know? No, no, that would be great. I, I mean, because um, that's just it. Lyft Security, who does all that, like the Node Security Project, just got acquired by NPM. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I did know that. I'd heard about it from Adam. Yeah, so we should we should have Adam on because that would be a like I would really like to talk to him about that. Um, I know I, you know, both you have you and I have talked about Node Security in the past, and this dovetails right into and this dovetails right into you know hipster language security issues, right? But we've both talked about node security in the past, and that was always one of the big issues that I see with these, with the dependencies that we build into these apps is just the vulnerabilities that can be introduced. And the fact that you're running code that you don't necessarily know what it's doing. I mean, the same could be argued for, you know, Ruby's, Ruby on Rails and Django and everything else, because you are depending on this ecosystem to provide functionality for you. But there seems to be so much more third-party code associated with Node specifically, as opposed to these other languages and frameworks. That I don't, I don't know how I would wrap my head around that. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not certain. I, I, you know, I did mention to Jeremy Long, um, like, or ask him if he had any uh, interest in doing the podcast. Uh, I forget what it was. That Logomogosec. We were both tired. It was early morning. Um, so, and we were just like shooting, shooting it. So I don't know if, uh, I have to follow or follow back on, follow up on that, but he's for, also, for those of you don't know, Jeremy, uh, he is one of the lead developers on dependency check, right? Yeah. That's his, he's the, the, the lead on that, the dependency check project. Yeah. And so that's an OWASP project that goes out and actually looks to see, it does a comparison of the third-party libraries that your application is using and known CVEs and known vulnerabilities in those applications or yeah, in those libraries. Uh, so you can run a report and say, hey, it looks like your you know, XSS library doesn't have this bypass or whatever in it, right? Yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a good project, right? Uh, a bit very similar to what Black Duck or some of the other commercial ones are doing. Yeah, he, he, um, he's put, been working on that for he's put a lot of time in it's been, been doing it for like man i don't know probably at least i want to say seven yeah seven. i was gonna say seven to ten years it's it's been out for a while i remember him showing me his early proof of concept at a living social space living social spaces meetup so that would have been around 2011 so yeah i'm thinking about seven years now he's been working on that project sweet so. 
Yeah, that's a lot of work. For those that don't know, I mean, doing an OWASP project can be quite a bit of work. Um, I've kind of had to do less lately, but we were going through trying to do the Google Summer of Codes. So we had tried to get a uh, Google Summer of Code on Rails Goat, the, the OWASP project I work on. And uh, man, that's a lot of work. I don't know if you've ever tried to do a Google Summer of Code for anything you're working on, but that is... Luckily, we had someone pretty much doing that for us. We had a volunteer doing that for us. Uh, but still, even then, there was a lot to uh, coordinate or at least uh, communicate on, I should say, not coordinate. Al did all the coordination. Uh, so, Yeah, I, was, I always wondered how those got put together, but never... Right? Summer's always a busy time. So, well, yeah, it's pretty. So to give you an idea of the high level, it's pretty like, so we first we had to apply. So an organization had to apply, right? The OWASP organization applies for a certain amount of slots for Google Summer of Code. So now within OWASP, you've got to kind of say, hey, you, you want to vie for one, you know, you want to go for one of those spots. So you you come up with a plan you communicate like this is the roadmap these are the you have to define it pretty it's got to be scoped pretty tightly right you don't want to just say um oh hey they're gonna improve the code base or you know work on authentication or it, it can't be anything silly like that it's got to be very specific as to what they're doing um and so you write all that up you put together a list of mentors so then you have to have some mentors that you know hold their hand up and say, I'm, I'm willing to be a mentor. So you've got committed mentors. You've got, um, you know, you're requesting that slot. If you get the slot, then it's a whole other, you get access to a dashboard and there's all these things you're going to do. And then you review candidates, applications, um, their submissions. And then uh, um, we had a couple, uh, but, you know, one of them wasn't, you know, up, up to snuff, so to speak. So, um, you kind of, it stinks, but you have to kind of say, Hey, this isn't, you know, this is not going to work out. Yeah. It's not going to work out. So there's got to be some level of skill, but you do have to upfront say like, this is the amount of skill that this person should have, whether it be no programming or whether it be a little bit. So kind of have to agree up uh, about, you have to agree, agree on that with all the mentors ahead of time. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've always thought it would be, you know, it's a good way to actually spread some work around and get people involved that maybe necessarily wouldn't be or wouldn't be willing to, right? Or wouldn't trust themselves to, I guess. Um, but then on the other hand, you've still got to manage that. You've still got to be able to put in the time. You've still got to find the mentors to actually help them through, be able to you know, review their code to make sure it's up to snuff to make sure it meets the requirements, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, I want to see people. Um, I think we all, you know, I, I want to see somebody learn something they've, they've, they've never, I want to see somebody who might have just a little bit of scripting skills, we'll say programming skills, and then be able to, you know, help them get to that point where they're, working like they would in a production environment in the pull request flow and the code quality and things like that. So that's, that was the goal. But, uh, and also in this case, it would also learn security aspects. So 
Yep. Didn't pan out. We'll try again next year. I'm thinking so. Yeah. Well, you know, one year at a time for sure. Um, for sure. Yeah. Oh, I should probably check Slack to see if there are any questions. I haven't even, sorry. I haven't checked any of the talking so much. Okay. So we put the links in there. No questions thus far on the live chat. Do, do, do. I see something in general. That's all tweets. Okay. So we haven't missed any. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we've, I, I, I mean, this week we didn't advertise as much as we probably could have. So I'm not sure. Looks like we've got a couple of viewers though. Um, so that kind of brings us to the next, you know, list of topics. I, I, I know that we, we kind of put out there that we were going to talk about hipster languages and frameworks and security issues with those. You know, obviously we've already talked about, you know, third party dependencies, um, keeping those up to date, making sure that you're running code that you trust is, is a huge problem. Right? Yeah, so maybe we'll, we'll 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 dedicate an episode to that when we can get Adam on or Jeremy on to talk about um, the specifics of how they go about identifying those vulnerabilities or protecting their those code bases or those package repositories. Um, tell me what else you you look at when you're looking at an application. I mean, you're, you've obviously got the the Ruby Ruby on Rails. Um, security experience, right? Uh, and like that—that's one of the original. Or that it could be argued that that is the original kind of hipster framework. Um, so, talk me through what you actually do when you're analyzing Rails for vulnerabilities. I mean, we know about cross-site scripting. We know about SQL injection. You know the the old OWASP top ten, but what else is it that you are concerned about? I I know that you've dug quite a bit into the actual code for Rails, so that's what I'd be interested in: how you go about approaching an application that is sitting on top of Rails, and how you identify vulnerabilities in it that that maybe somebody who only knows XSS and SQL injection would be able to identify or could kind of follow. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're just so kind of break this down into the the general assessment methodology, I guess. So you, if you're a person who's maybe not as familiar with, uh, even if you are familiar with Rails, it's, it's it, there's a way that I do it that works for me. And so uh, good rake routes, right? So if you've never assessed a Rails application, you may not be aware, but you can run this command rake routes and you can see all of the routes that exist for the uh, Rails applications. And you can't see that just by looking at config. I mean, you can, I guess. You can look at, um... okay, so with Rails, by the way, uh, for those that don't know, and this the same, well, the same is not true actually for Node or Django, as a matter of fact. It's very, with Rails, everything is very specific, like where a file goes, its location. So in every Rails application, there is a config directory and has a routes.rb file where routes are defined. Routes being places on your website, basically the HTTP paths available on your website. And then it lists, if you're hitting that path, then where does it go? And also, are you hitting it with a get request, a post request, a put request? What, you know, what kind of a request is this? So first of all, running rig routes, 
you can look at the routes.rb file, sure, but some of that stuff is dynamically generated and it's just easier to run rake routes. And once you do that, you get this whole huge list of routes and you know essentially all the endpoints that are available on the site. Now, the tricky part though, well, there's a lot of tricky parts, but one of the tricky parts is, you know, once you've defined, you say, okay, this route goes to, if I hit, a, if I do a get request to forward slash, you know, appsec, right? Forward slash appsec, we'll say, then where does that go? Uh, it's going to go to this controller and this action. Okay, let's go look at that controller, that action. All right, now I have to look at all the, what we call before filters and rails inside of, uh, you and I did a course on Django security. What was it uh, for? There's some specific naming conventions for Django. But are you thinking um, URLs.py? No, no, no. For the like the authorizations you can place, the annotations you can place above a, a like an action or a function inside of a views.py file. Oh, there's uh, there's specific decorators. I yeah, decorators. Yeah, that's um, is it like I think you've got an authenticate decorator, but it, it depends on the middleware that you're using, right? Yeah, like with Node uh, and Express, when you define a route, you can place middleware functions inside of a call so that if, yeah. if it says like app.post then you're providing it the uh the path then the middleware then the eventual function that it wants to hit um and the middleware runs prior to the function that it ultimately wants to hit the point being that if that middleware function it's the same with rails and it's before filter which is essentially not quite the same, but we'll say it's like middleware. So it sits in front of the, the function, right? So if I do hit forward slash appsec, we'll say it's under the appsec controller and there's like an index um, function inside there. Now, if I put a before filter on that index function, I you have to start analyzing that before filter. And you have to say like, is the authorization here fine? Or if I, you know, tweak the parameters, can I bypass the before filter. So you have to analyze the before filter, which again is like an authorization decorator, as you called it, um, yeah. which is the accurate term. And, and uh, then you have to look at the function itself. Routes can get you into trouble though, specifically the one thing in Rails that's pretty interesting, and I'm not sure how many people know it, but um, Rails by default protects you from cross-site request forgery. And it does that by any request that's not a any any state changing request, it's explicitly defined as dot or uh, explicitly defined as a post request, a put request, a delete request. Um, those types of requests, state changing requests, according to the RFC standard, um, those are automatically perfect, protected by cross site request forgery. A get request is not. Now I realize that there may be uh, restful calls made through get. Um, I don't really see the need for that, but cool. Like, let's say that that's, that's happening. Well, you're not protected by uh, Caesar from that instance. <clears throat> um, I guess, unless you're submitting the authenticity token with your request, but not to get off on a tangent, let's just stick with get request, not Caesar protected, everything else you're, you're Caesar protected. So um, with routes though, you can, in earlier versions of Rails, you could call match and match just said, doesn't matter like what the HTTP, HTTP verb is and that's get, post, put, whatever. 
doesn't matter just for if you see a request to this this you know forward slash appsec just send it to this this controller in action well yeah. the problem being is obviously you and i know this but for those that don't know the problem is is you know what was supposed to be a form with a post request that had an authenticity token a csurf token and in theory is protected you can just flip that to a get request because of that match statement in the route and then okay cool you've you don't you don't have any csurf protection the framework doesn't care anymore and the same goes for like connect inside of a rails route so just even starting with the routes themselves, there's something that could go wrong. And then you talk about, you know, your authorization filters, um, and then you get into the actual method. And now this is where it gets even trickier because you might have, um, like for instance, you might have a call to your model. And again, for those that aren't aware, model is, this is an active record pattern, but you know, you might be more, familiar with the term ORM. And that just means uh, an abstracted way to work with the database. And a model is like, a, it's like a table in the database, right? And in some cases, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Well, and often that's the case where it's an abstracted table in the database. So if I have a user model, that is the user table in the database. So you have to review the model for security issues, right? It could be if it's like users and you're talking about like password complexity and password validation and things like that, and timing attacks and um, user enumeration, those things that's usually in your user model as well as mass assignment. I know that's something you wanted to talk a little bit about. So yeah. uh, let's get into it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. okay. Yeah, so mass assignment. Um, uh, I'm, try I'm trying to give a good description here, right? Uh, is the ability, I, I mean, what's the other name for it? Is active record abuse, right? I think is what they... Insecure object mapping is a familiar one from like the Java world, I think. Okay, insecure object mapping, that makes sense as well, right? Um, basically, what happens is that, that developers get lazy. Realistically is what happens is what's going on. Uh, and they're accepting content from the user and storing that directly into the model, right? So you have specific um, parameters or specific uh, columns that are required to store something in a model. And as long as that's attached to the object that's coming in from the user, whether that's you know JSON decoded or what have you, um, and it's stored directly into the database through you know, just a save command without any checks on what is coming from the user before it actually gets stored into the model. Um, so what can happen is that if there are other columns in that model, so you, you have like the user table that we were talking about or the user model, if there happens to be a role definition that's in there that's by default you know, role three, which is the user role, if the user attaches a role parameter on their update request to the application and your application is not checking to make sure that role isn't actually in that list of parameters and it just saves it out directly, the user could potentially manipulate the role parameter or they, no, they not could potentially, they can add a role parameter to the request and have it saved into the database. So if they they add like a role one, which is would you know could potentially be the administrator role to their account, 
then the application accepts it the next time they log in or when they refresh the application, all of a sudden they have access to the administrator functionality. Um, is that yeah. correct, Ken? You know, yeah, am I understanding that right? Yeah, and it's not just limited to Rails, right? It's uh, we saw this in um, what is it, Mongoose with Node? Uh, I I've I definitely found this in in Mongoose and Node. Um, I think someone had told me Mongoose might have patched or made it easier to say like, here's the only columns I want exposed. But it was the same exact thing. It was like rec uh, req, you know abbreviation for request request dot body um and it was just being shoved into so the entire body of like let's say a post request just being shoved into a new model instantiation so you're creating a new user um during sign up with the users like you said if there's an admin column and it's a boolean true or false and i do you know to my the body of my request to go ampersand so add another parameter and I do admin equals true. It's going to evaluate to true in the database. And now I'm an admin. I've just created an admin account. And that's happened. Like that's actually, it's funny that we were talking about this. This is like the first one of the first, if I don't have access to source code, this would be one of the first things I would do back in the day, as you said. Uh, so I would sign up and add in a, um, like admin equals true, admin equals one, administrator equals one, owner equals one. Just fiddle around with that to see if any of my signed, my newly signed up accounts would elevate to administrative. And it worked. It worked surprisingly a lot. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a form of parameter manipulation. Um, but as you get to know applications and how developers actually code things, it becomes easier, right? To to predict what the names of those columns is going to be, right? With Django, for example, right? You know that there is an is underbar super user and is underbar admin if they're using, you know, the Django authentication middleware. Um, and so it's very easy to actually attach that to your user creation or even your user update uh, request to the application to try and elevate your privileges. I mean, mass assignment is definitely a fun one to play with, but it does harken back. Like if we look back, you know, 10, 15 years, we didn't talk about mass assignment. We talked about parameter manipulation. Um, but at the time, we didn't necessarily have these ORMs that were built out for us to easily access the database. So we had to actually manipulate the parameters that were on the page. In this case, we're just adding parameters to see what's going to stick and if anything sticks in the database. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, with and specifically with like Rails, for instance, um, like and so I'm not sure how Mongoose ended up doing it with Rails. It can be so picky and opinionated, right? So it can say so the protection used to be in the model and you say these are the attributes that are allowed to be used in mass assignment. So a user dot new or a user dot update attributes or something like that, where you can just shove all the key value pairs in there and then you've got which is a parameter and a and its value right so again i know you know this but just for people listening so uh they said no we don't want to do that anymore that's too much work um let's do and, and honestly it, it's prone to some issues so like there are cases where they definitely did want mass assignment uh because 
there's a difference between mass assignment and insecure mass assignment. Mass assignment itself, to be clear, is not a security issue. It's just how it works. Insecure mass assignment is just the nature of doing it insecurely, right? Just like direct object reference. You can look up a product by doing like a product.find and provide it a number and get something back from the database. And that's no problem. And the user can, can give you that, that number, right? Because you're just searching a catalog, presumably, for, of products. And you're just saying like, oh, product 1000 I want to look at or product 2000. Whatever, that's fine. But the second you start saying, well, I want to look at user.1000 or user.2000. Well, unless you're, you know, I don't know, unless that's what they wanted for your role in the app, it's probably not what you should be doing. So that then it's insecure direct object reference. So for insecure mass assignment, the fix in real. Again, did I lose you? To be provided on a per action um, basis. So inside of a controller, you can say, I want to apply this before filter to, um, you know, whatever action or actions. And then inside that, that, you know, method defined for that before filter, you just say, okay, these are the parameters that are okay. A to... And it does allow it just said anything. Yeah. Well, and like Django is very similar, but uh, they don't necessarily define it on the model itself. They define it within the the, the save call, right? Because you can you can use like an include or an exclude statement. You can blacklist specific columns that you don't want to be there with exclude, or you can include other ones. So each of the different languages and frameworks have mechanisms built in to prevent the insecure mass assignment. But again. Developers are lazy, right? I, like, and I like, and I'm including myself in that statement. It's very easy for me to go in and just do. Oh, we're going to take this from the user and just dump it straight into save, and I don't have to manipulate it. It's less code. It means that I spend less time actually building out this application, and I can move on to the next thing. Um, so, you know, yes, it's lazy, but it's also we're trying to put push features out the door. Is really what's going on there? Yeah, it definitely depends on your shop. Some shops are like. You know, you just got to get stuff done. Um, even though, you know, there's an argument to be said that you're probably going to end up causing more heartache in the long end, in the long run, and you're not really thinking of your future self there. But uh, whatever, some shops are like that where you know you just have to run and gun, and and uh, so it may be like you said, a very much it's it is very much a convenience thing, um, but it is a problem. You know, the other things we didn't, you know, because I know we're running a little over on time. Um, you know, the other things we didn't talk too much about, but that are fairly significant in any framework or language are like, um, so NoSQL injection still a thing. And if you're not familiar with NoSQL injection, uh, Google it. But, you know, if you're talking about a, like something like MongoDB, so no, the idea of NoSQL, by the way, is just basically... Um, with MongoDB, for instance, it's just documents. So it all, and when a document is so just a JSON blob, that's it. It's just a JSON blob. That's a record in it. And it's a MongoDB record. And obviously, there is a way to work with that record set, which is the no, you make NoSQL queries and you're giving it effectively JSON content to do queries for JSON records. Right. So then if user input is converted to JSON, 
or interpreted as JSON, during that NoSQL query, you have NoSQL injection. So it's the same kind of thing as like HTML injection or SQL injection or command injection. It's just a confusion of what is code and what is user supplied input, but with a pretty nasty, um, and actually let me post this article because I thought it was really nice. The one or the PDF from uh, OWASP that I was, um, yeah, that we were talking about before. Let me post that in the description because it has CouchDB, MongoDB. Uh, what else did it have? Uh, well, okay, so there's a thing about Redis. I think Redis or Memcache, and and that's another thing is like in memory databases. You know, you're doing get, set, delete on um, a namespace, right? So uh, again, you're talking about a storage of like we'll say a big JSON blob with something like Redis. And it's got to have a key, and that's how you pull it out. That's how you pull out the record is by providing it that key name. And that's what I'm referring to as the namespace. And so if you can, if you're a user, and you can control the namespace that's being either get or set, there could be a problem there, right? You could um, get another user's records, for instance, just because the, I don't know, the namespace is including some user supplied input and you can tweak it to be another user, maybe provide their login handle or their um, username or their uh, email address or whatever information. And then you get their Redis uh, data back. And that's one thing that that PDF also talks about, but we've seen it. Um, we've seen no SQL injection. We've seen mass assignment. Uh, these are fairly common now in the, hipster languages. And I think it's because <clears throat> these are the technologies. It's just the technology that's being used. You know, I don't know. I can't, I really don't know. I don't know how many, like we'll say old school. I say, I call it old school. Sorry if I'm offending anybody, but like <clears throat> J2EE um, or, you know, something like that where I'm not sure if they're, how frequently they're using Redis or they're using Memcache or they're, Using some of these, uh, like, kind of hipster tech, we'll call it, like NoSQL. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, like surprisingly enough, I have seen. I mean, not not necessarily J two E E, but I do see people using .NET Core, and you know Java nine to access Redis databases, right? I mean, the developers have that experience, so obviously they're just going to use whatever libraries out there to actually take advantage of some of these new hipster texts. And so, so it is out there; it does exist. Uh, like Ken was saying, with the mass assignment, the insecure mass assignment vulnerabilities, you will see that in Java and .NET because they have the same sorts of paradigms that they're using the same thing you know they have ORMs you know they're starting to expose models in the same way uh, it just seems that the hipster languages adopted it first so that's where we we started to identify the security issues uh, in those languages and then it's pushed into some of that older the older languages and the older frameworks from there um yeah, like I'm trying to think of what else, what other hipster bones are out there that we we necessarily want to talk about it. You know, I don't think we've got enough time to really cover you know serialization issues at this time. Um, we did have a another item that we wanted to bring up about uh, Google forums, uh, something that Jerry Gamblin had brought up just recently and posted on his Twitter account. And it 
Jerry, I'm sure we'll have him on again at some point. Um, but basically, exposure of Google uh, forum user lists just with configurations in Google forums, right? And how those Google apps are set up. Um, I don't like. Oh man, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if we want to dig into that too much, right? This is pretty funny because as we're talking about Jerry, and we're talking about you know the Google forums he brought up. And we're talking about malicious code being out there publicly. Jerry goes and shares a link on, um, well, here, let me sh- share it to you. But basically, it's a, it's a, it's malware on a, um, on a repo SSH decorator. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me send this, put this into just funny timing there. I put it into the live chat. Um, so that's pretty interesting stuff here. Uh, in your source code on pypy.org, you have a piece of malware cart code. And let's see. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It does. Uh, so it's sending off data to uh, SSH decorate.cf. Dang. Uh, yeah. It's wow. logging everything. Jeez. That sucks. Wow. See, and, um, I, well, and this is just it, right? If you're depending on this code to do something for you, you, there's no way that you necessarily know that it's there unless someone is actually pointing that out. Yeah, and then see the, the comment below where they're like improving the backdoor code. Like, no, it'd be better written like this. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Uh, this is hosted by Bluehost, probably worth reporting to them. Do, do, do. This is really interesting stuff. Oh, wow. This is really recent. These comments go up as, as 40 minutes uh, ago. Is, wow. This the is last awesome. one was five minutes ago. Dang, man. Dang. <laughs> you, you heard it here, folks. Yeah. That's got uh, some infosec awesome. drama for you. Yeah. Well, that's just happens to be super timely. And we do need to get Jerry back on here. We do. Um, so I'll reach out or you can reach out. We'll, we'll reach out to, to Jerry. Yeah. So well, yeah, we're going to have to talk about, about that one some more. Cause that's a, yeah, that one is incredibly cool. Right. Uh, well, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of scary, but it's very cool as well that that's actually what's going on that somebody's pushed that in. Man. And they've gone to the level of, hey, this is when it was actually pushed, how long ago it happened, right? This is rough. Oh, man, SSH decorate. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to actually see how many people are using SSH decorate or how many downloads that is getting, right? Yeah, I mean, and just it's so and for those that are even familiar pypy is this is essentially again a package registry for python and so like while we're sitting on here we happen to see this notification about hey there's vulnerable um backdoored package you know yeah it's, out there, it's so. Live, right? so well cool well, um, yeah, I do have a hard stop tonight, unfortunately. So uh, Ken and I are probably going to call it here pretty quick. Um, I don't think I, I haven't seen any comments or questions come in today. Uh, if 
anybody is around or has any, let us know. Um, otherwise, email us, absoluteapsec at gmail.com. And yeah, we'll be happy to talk about this further. Uh, next week, we're not sure who, you know, if we're going to have a guest on again or if, if people have topics that they want to discuss, they want to keep talking about this sort of thing or, you know, specifics of uh, security testing, however that happens, uh, we'd be more than happy to go to dive into it. Uh, just let us know, right? Ken, do you have any parting thoughts for us tonight? No, other than it's the 22nd that we won't air, I, I believe. Um, and if we do, we we'll, might have to tweak it to another day that week. Um, we are trying to get Alex Smolin on. Um, he had said yes. Uh, he had given us updates, but we're having, we're trying to move some things around because, you know, I, I'm both set that I have to travel occasionally. So this happens. Um, Chris Gates is coming up. Uh, and obviously we're trying to get Jerry back on. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, we've got, we've got some, some, there's a whole other list of guests that we're working on. So as soon as we have maybe like four or five weeks of guests lined up, hundred percent solidified. We'll start talking more about that. So I'm just going to keep bringing on awesome guests and uh, talking about AppSec. So cool. All right. Thanks everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon. All right. Thanks. Bye.